welcome to another episode of Slumber Party Cinema Club. My name is Kate Everson. I'm Katie Edward. And uh, we are your hosts today. We also have a special guest today. We have Lisa Battisfor on the podcast with us. Hi, Kate and Katie. Thank you so much for having me today. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, well, thank yeah. you. Um, it is a super busy time for you right now because of the work that you do. And so... When I told Katie that I wanted to do one of the movies that I just, the, the minute I think of summer movies, it's one of the first ones that comes to mind. We also know how prescient it is right now. So mm -hmm. uh, we are going to be talking about Dirty Dancing, Hell which yeah. came out in 19, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Katie's just excited to do something, another movie from the 80s. Uh, well, <laughs> well, one this came out the year I was born. And two, I was like, okay, you know, given current events that are happening currently, <laughs> we are freaking doing Dirty Dancing because it's so relevant. Oh my gosh, yes. And there are some really interesting reasons. Uh, Dirty Dancing came out in, in the late 80s. It was 15 years roughly after Roe versus Wade was decided upon the first time where the, the Supreme Court gave women the uh, just, you know, protected women's right to choose across the states. And so in 1987, this movie came out and most of the reactions to it weren't so much about the fact there is a very hefty abortion plot line through the whole thing, but the reactions were more to toward the, uh, the scandalous dancing and teenagers having sex on vacation. Um, so there's a lot to talk about. Everything from Patrick Swayze and Jennifer Grey being well over the age of playing teenagers, but playing you know, teenagers nonetheless. As you um, do in Hollywood. <laughs> as you do in Hollywood. I even have in my notes when it comes to the, if you liked this, you'll like another thing. Um, Wet Hot American Summer. If you haven't seen the TV series that they made with the original cast, all playing high school, you know, the high school students, but being well into their forties each, uh, excellent TV show. It's fu it's fucking funny. The movie and the show, you got to like weird comedy. I think you got to be into like weird absurdist comedy to sort of exactly like yeah. and dirty dancing. I mean, this wasn't done for comedic effect. It was just that Patrick Swayze and Jennifer Grey were super hot names to put in a movie in 1987. And also because they were both professional and experienced dancers. That was a huge thing for the movie. The director was really nervous about doing a film that was centered around dancing because another movie had just come out called Flashdance. And they ran into a huge issue when they were producing that movie in that they had, they had to bring in uh, dance doubles for the main actors. And they had to find dance doubles who looked like the actors because the actors themselves were not good enough to do any of the dance scenes. Oh, shit. So, I didn't know that. Yeah. So one of the things that the director was keen on was we need to make sure we hire people who actually can dance. And so that's how we got Jennifer Grey and Patrick Swayze, who hated each other. Yeah. I think it was because they were on Red Dawn together or not on in the movie Red Dawn together. Right. Exactly. And that's when Jennifer Grey started to not like Patrick Swayze. And I don't think he was too big a fan of her either. So this is now the second movie I have picked to talk about where we had two leads leads uh two lead actors who did not like each other at all yeah that's always so funny how I feel like that's pretty common in Hollywood how you hear like I I mean I guess with Mad Max you know it's not like those two characters were romantic interests unless you're someone who wants to interpret it that way and by all means go for it love fan fiction but um <laughs> That like that happens a lot where like some of the most iconic couples like on screen couples did not like each other at all. Yeah. Well, and I, I don't know if it's one of those things where if they didn't already dislike each other, just being forced into that kind of intimacy on a set, especially when you consider a lot of these movies like now we start hearing more about like intimacy coaches and mm -hmm. making sure that 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 filming love scenes with you know another actor is made as comfortable as possible, as non-intrusive as possible, and and they have people who are professionals at helping with that process now. But for a lot of these cases, I mean, we've heard some real horror stories on sets, you know, from sets where uh, two actors, if they didn't already dislike each other, there were going to be some incidents that would make them uh, definitely not like each other by the end of the filming. So. 
Yeah. So there's a whole bunch of stuff I want to talk about, but I am, uh, I'm wondering, Katie, when was the first time you saw the movie and what was the, what was the condition? Ooh, I was pretty young, probably maybe in middle school, maybe early high school, young enough to think that when I saw the VHS sitting like uh, in our video shelf, whatever, I thought Dirty Dancing was about strippers because I just assumed that Dirty Dancing meant strippers. <laughs> but yeah, no, I was pretty young when I saw that. And I think that was another, probably I probably watched it on television, like when my mom had it on. That's really the story of a lot of movies I saw that came out of the 80s. My mom had the mm. movie on and I just watched it. Yeah, that's fair. Lisa, how about you? Now, I know that we talked a little bit earlier about this, but uh, have you seen Dirty Dancing? Are you pretty aware of the premise? How much are we going to spoil on this call for you? You know, I think you're going to end up spoiling a lot, but I'm here for it. So um, <laughs> I've never seen Dirty Dancing. I'm kind of known for not seeing a lot of classic movies. Um, but I will say something that is really interesting that I have noticed, uh, especially in about the last month, is this idea that a lot of people who had seen it in the past are suddenly saying, I didn't even realize there was you know, content about abortion in there. And now it's all they can think about. So I just think that's really interesting. So it's definitely going on my list. Yeah. Awesome. Which actually opens us up to explain why we, we asked you to join us. So for our listeners, uh, Lisa is the founder of Reproductive Transparency Now, which is a nonprofit organization dedicated to fighting for truth and transparency in reproductive health care. So her mission is to raise awareness about anti-abortion crisis pregnancy centers that use false and misleading information to create barriers to abortion access. And also Lisa has a, uh, an experience. She is an abortion clinic escort where she helps people who need abortions or just people who need to go into a Planned Parenthood for one of the many, many other things Planned Parenthood does, make sure that they stay safe uh, when they walk into clinics, especially when there's a lot of protesting going on outside. So I would say one, one thing I will point out is, you know, when you think about abortion clinics, there's really kind of two main buckets, right? So you've got your Planned Parenthoods, uh, which do provide a lot of abortions, but you also have your independent abortion clinics, which in the U.S., um, independent clinics provide about 60% of um, all abortion procedures. And so in my experience as a clinic escort, it has always been with independent clinics. So to like independent clinics, are they just performing abortions? Or are they also doing like family care? Is it similar to like Planned Parenthood? More of their work is going to be focused on abortions, but mm. they do offer you know, family planning services too. Gotcha. Yeah. I was just curious because I always just think of going to Planned Parenthood. I never even realized that there were independent abortion services or abortion clinics. Yeah, so we're excited because Lisa, um, you know, there's a whole plot line in this movie. And I'll admit, I didn't see the movie until I was in college or after I graduated from college. Um, I visited my sister when she was at college and she had some friends over and they got wind that I had never seen the movie Dirty Dancing. My sister, I think, somehow had picked it up in like a $5 bin at the Walmart. And so she popped it in. And so the first time I ever saw it was in a group of girls that were five years younger than me, who had all seen it at least three times a piece, um, <laughs> which is a very interesting experience uh, as an older sibling who's usually in charge of showing her younger sibling the canonical movies that, that are important. So um, <laughs> yeah, that was the first time I'd ever seen it. Now, I never said that was the first time. I, I think they knew, but like up until that point, I had already read the Wikipedia page. Uh, for it just so I would know what it was about uh, so I could have you know conversations with people who liked 80s cinema and uh, uh -huh. that was sort of right I don't know a lot of a lot of college was me pretending to have seen movies I had never seen before I do <laughs> so when I, I do that with the Goonies I just don't no want to get in I yeah I just don't want to get into it so you know yeah yeah I no pretend like I've seen it have you been caught yet no, I guess secrets out now, but secrets out now. If you need me to edit that out, I'll protect your, <laughs> your secret. No, it's cool. So yeah. So I, I, I read the Wikipedia thing and that's, I think maybe that's the reason why I was aware going in of the abortion plot line. But for the most part, like when people is you know, before now, anyway, when people talked about the movie, it was all about nobody puts baby in a corner 
and Patrick Swayze looking phenomenal and dancing phenomenally. Can I be on speaking of that? I just want to get up on my romance soapbox a little bit. How subversive romance movies and more so romance books a lot of the time, but romance movies can be like very sneaky and like dressing things up in like really pretty costumes and having beautiful love stories and sort of all this like flash and underneath you have some sort of socio-political lesson. Oh yeah. Well think of Jane Austen. Yeah. Right. Jane Austen, the OG rom-com writer. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So um, yeah, the, I think that there's a lot of interesting things like uh, Jennifer Grey happened to be on The View uh, the day that the draft opinion was leaked uh, this year. So on May 3rd, she was on The View and she, you know, they, they asked her about this draft opinion and she said that she was, you know, quote, I'm horrified that this is really back on the table again in 2022. I mean, talk about being in the corner, unquote. Mm-hmm. So to her, I mean, she, she obviously recognized it and she was in the movie. So it makes sense that she knew about it. But I think that, like you said, there's an onslaught of now literature and, and think pieces and articles around what, da- you know, the, the commentary that Dirty Dancing has around abortion without focusing entirely on it. And also, I think one of the things I like about the movie so much is there's not one single person in the movie who goes, oh my God, she needs an abortion. She shouldn't be getting an abortion. Yeah, yeah, that's true. No, there's no judgment. The, the biggest judgment is about the guy who got her pregnant. Yeah. In fact, that seems to be the only concern anyone has, apart from, you know, her safety and her health. The only concern anyone has is, you know, like, there's the, the, the whole plot line with Jerry, Jerry Orbach is he doesn't want baby around the guy that knocked up this girl. And it, it's not because, you know, like, oh, don't hang out with with Penny. It's, I just want you to be safe. And, you know, a guy who does that is probably no good. Well, so the fact, Jerry Orbach yeah. as a father and man also knows that men are shit. So <laughs> <laughs> except for Jerry Orbach himself. I mean, don't yeah. forget he did donate his eyes after he died. Oh my gosh. Jerry Orbach's eyes. <laughs> I, was I wasn't gonna somebody what I've been doing that all day I've I know been Jerry Orbach's eyes I was like I'm not gonna reference or recite a whole John Mulaney bit but anyways the the way that they do the commentary around it it's more of a commentary and it was 1987 right so even though the movie mm-hmm. set in 1963 in 1987 at that point Roe v. Wade had been overturned for 15 years or roughly 15 years. And the conversation around abortion rights, I think had maybe gotten a little quieter because it was it felt like a done deal. It's kind of like what Mandy Patinkin's wife said on her, her video today. Um, she posted about her, her access to abortion through the years. And she said, I thought, she's like, I'm, I'm upset because I felt like this was a done deal. And in 87, it felt like it was a done deal. And so when you're making a movie in the 19, in, set in 1963, it's, it's more of a, oh, yes, well, back then she wouldn't have been able to get one readily. Yeah. Now she can, but back then she wouldn't have been able to. And it wasn't a, you know, should she have been seeking an abortion? It, that was never the question. 63, so that would have been 10 years before Roe v. Wade. But yeah, the fact that it's set 15 years after Roe v. Wade and like, now or at the time legalized safe abortion was you know a thing I remember one of the things thinking like when I watched it wow it's really great as a society that you know we won't ever have to go back to shifty doctors and dirty knives and folding tables as they say in the movie yeah exactly they say, well the whole thing is they said up like oh there's a doctor who'll do it but he's only here on Thursday so she gets penny the money right and then they get back and it didn't go well. And the whole thing is, you know, yeah, he was there, but he had a, a dirty knife and a folding table. Yeah. And the whole thing was, I thought you said he was a real doctor, you know? So like, yeah, it, it was very much, there was a commentary on the, uh, you know, how unsafe it was, not on, on Penny for needing one or Penny for deciding to have one, which is really refreshing. Cause I mean, I think back to like 2007 when Juno came out, Mm-hmm. Um, and Lisa, maybe have you seen Juno yet? I have seen Juno, but it has been a long time. Yeah. So Juno has a, an interesting bit. And I kind of wanted to bring this one in too, is Elliot Page's character is walking into the abortion clinic 
And one of uh, Juno's classmates is standing outside protesting alone about all babies want to be born. And it makes, it makes Juno think twice. And so Juno decides to have the baby and give it up for adoption. At the time, I remember watching it and being like, well, obviously that needed to happen because otherwise we would have no movie. And it, see, it would seem weird with that character for Juno not to think of going to do that, like first, and then deciding against it. But it was still like this interesting like way that I don't want to call it peer pressure, but in Juno's sense, peer pressure has an effect on that decision that women make. And I, I always wonder, maybe Lisa, with your experience, do you think that like movies that have that kind of bit, which I think it worked beautifully in Juno because it fit the character and what would have happened. Do you see movies that like show that, you know, the protests work? Mm. Um, do you think that that hasn't had an effect on the way that people protest abortion, especially outside of clinics? I am really glad you're bringing this up. And I would say, have I seen it in movies where it's working? No. Have I seen it in, play out in real life? Absolutely. And I think what we need to keep in mind is what is the message that these people who are standing outside of the clinics and they call themselves sidewalk counselors, um, they will stand out there, you know, with, and this has become very popular in pop culture, you know, within the last couple of weeks with signs that say, we will adopt your baby. Oh yeah. Um, Oh yeah. I've seen those memes. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And this is, I think, such an important conversation to have, and it is not had nearly enough. Adoption is not an alternative to abortion. Okay. So like when somebody gets pregnant, they have a a, a decision to make, right? Do they want to stay pregnant or not? If not, abortion is an alternative to that pregnancy. Once they've decided or for whatever reason need to stay pregnant, uh, whether that's by circumstance or by conscious decision, then it's a question of can they or do they want to parent or not? And that's where adoption is the alternative uh, to parenting. Mm -hmm. And something that is really important to acknowledge and through my work with reproductive transparency now, you know, I've really become much more aware of the discussions that are being had uh, within the adoptee community and something that's really important to acknowledge. And I'd be interested to hear what the perspective was on Juno, you know, adoption comes with a lot of lifelong trauma um, and grief and pain and anti-abortion activists are never forthcoming about that. And that's true also of anti-abortion crisis pregnancy centers. Hmm. And so When you see someone, you know, quote unquote, change their mind outside of a clinic, who's to say that uh, they didn't come back the next day or the next day, right? Maybe it made them think about it again. Maybe they became ashamed because of what this person was saying to them, or they got nervous or scared. So you don't really know what that person ended up doing later. And it's only it's no one's business, but their own, right? To make that mm-hmm. decision. Right. Yep. And keeping in mind too, it, what is the information being shared with people outside of clinics? Because I'll tell you what, the information I've seen shared personally with my own eyes is simply not the truth. And I'll give you an example of what really got me interested in this work in the first place. I was, you know, working a clinic escort shift and, you know, we, there are regulars out there and they have the same messages. They say the same things, you know, they tell everybody the same stuff. And this one woman was handing out um, pamphlets to, to patients who were just trying to get into the clinic. You know, I always will offer if, if they shove a pamphlet in a patient's face, you know, I will, you know, just look over at the patient and say, Hey, if you don't want that, I'll take it. And in this particular case, the patient handed me the pamphlet. And I noticed that the anti-abortion protester was yelling at me that I'm not allowed to take it. And I didn't know why. Mm. And so I opened it up and there was a $1 bill taped inside of that pamphlet. Interesting. And so, you know, you tell me, like, what was that $1 bill meant to, to, to signify or, you know, to that, to that patient who is going into the clinic, who is you know, made the decision that she wants to make, will have the option to, you know, decide differently 
if she wants to. It, it, it's really, it's something to really think through because if somebody is out there, you know, tell, you know, spewing lies to people walking into the clinic, did they really help change someone's mind or, you know, were they just creating more trauma? Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And I think it, it, it's sort of similar to what we saw with anti-vax marching that happened where all of a sudden uh, anyone with uh, access to poster board at Michael's and glitter glue had the ability to become a doctor on the sidewalk mm-hmm. and give you all of their medical advice. And that, I mean, I, I talk, you know, I, anti-vax is where my head goes first because I think that's just, it's more recent and it's louder and it's a lot of, a lot of people being affected by that, not just people who have gotten pregnant um, and are deciding what to do about it. So in that same way, this is sort of a, a, a smaller version of that. And I can understand the frustration of especially the medical profession where they've gone to school for 10 plus years uh, to, to learn about how the body works. And here we've got people who are standing with their, their poster and their pamphlets with a, a dollar bill inside and are circumventing that expertise. Yeah. And I can say, um, because I'm I'm thinking about this as I I listen to you kind of talk about your experiences, Lisa. Um, I used to be, when I was younger, I was very religious. And I used to be on the other side of this kind of argument as a kid. Like I remember being in middle school and going out to like pro-life kind of side of the road protests. We didn't, I I didn't necessarily ever go to any clinics or anything like that. But like the way that the problem was like presented to me again as a kid was, well, abortion's killing babies. And I'm like, yeah, that sounds bad. I, I don't want people to do that. And that's like all some people see it as. And then I know, obviously, as I got older, I started to realize, you know, abortion's not killing babies. There's more to it than that. I was not given all the information that I needed to make an informed decision or opinion about that. So obviously, like, you know, I've changed my mind and my viewpoints and stuff. I don't even remember sort of being quote unquote pro-life in my daily life. Like, let's say, you know, if social media had existed back when I was a teenager, I can't imagine that I'd be that teen that was like posting pro-life things on her Instagram. I guess back then it would have been live journal. Uh, (laughs) Zanga. (laughs) My my Zanga, my Zanga. Like, all I remember doing is standing. It was like near our courthouse because that was really like the one place in town to to kind of stand and get your point across to everybody to like max out, you know, your exposure. Just holding signs like I don't even remember what they said. Probably the typical message like abortion is murder, yada, yada. Mm -hmm. And like, but you know what? Even then, like for being a small, fairly religious town in the South, I do remember people honking horns at us and screaming, fuck you out the window. So (laughs) there's hope. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and I think it's so, I'm so happy that, that you shared that experience, Katie, because I mean, that is, that is an experience that I think a lot of children share. I have seen many gatherings of teens, you know, they will, you know, these, the pro-life groups, I don't even like to say pro-life. I like to say anti-abortion, you know, these anti-abortion groups will bus in large groups of teenagers. Parents will bring their small children, have them standing outside in the bitter cold or the blistering heat standing outside the clinic. And it's something that as clinic escorts, we're very aware of. And we understand that there's some level of exploitation of these children out there. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So Lisa, one of the things I'm interested in, this came up because I was talking to a friend who you know, we're, we're talking, she, she's up to do an episode of this podcast too. And I was kind of explaining what we're doing. And Lisa, you do have the honor of being our first ever guest on this podcast, uh, three weeks in to recording, <laughs> but you know, we were talking and I mentioned that we are going to have you on because of what you do, especially with reproductive transparency now. And she got very quiet and she said, yeah, when my mom was expecting me, she went to one of those pregnancy crisis centers and they convinced her to to keep the baby. They convinced her to have me. So without that, I wouldn't be here. And I I am not usually lost for words, but I kind of was because I just didn't know how to respond 
apart from, well, I'm very glad. Like, I'm glad that worked out this way. But in your work, have you come across that, you know, because that is a reality for people. Have you come across that? And and how do you respond when you hear those kinds of stories? Yeah. And I think, you know, I, I hear a lot of stories around this topic, you know, through my interactions on social media and things of that nature. And I think that similar logic can apply to both a scenario where, you know, someone, you know, would have terminated their pregnancy and did not, or maybe someone who placed their child for adoption or relinquished their child versus, you know, if they had not, you know, the, the, the fact of the matter is that if you as a fetus were terminated, right, were aborted, you would never know. Exactly. You know, (laughs) Mm -hmm. and that's the really tough part because I think even when you sit, let's say someone has an unplanned pregnancy and maybe at first they're upset or they're scared and then they end up kind of coming to terms with it and end up being excited about it. Right. There's a, a switch in the pregnant person's mindset and way of thinking. And the, the key is though, did that person have bodily autonomy? Did they have the option to make a choice for themselves that was best for themselves? Mm-hmm. And if the answer to that is no, then that's wrong. But once someone is born, they're a person, they exist and they have every right to exist. And I can't imagine the pain that would come with thinking I wasn't wanted, you know, like Mm. that's traumatic Mm. in and of itself. Well, and now we're seeing, you know, how many kids are in foster care while these couples are standing out with their signs and we will adopt your baby. Well, there's 140,000 kids in the system. I think that was the last number I saw. Yeah, that's that was kind of my reaction to seeing those signs. Like, what stopped you before? Like, no, to be fair, to be fair, to be fair, to be fair. Thank you, Larry Kenny. You know, not all those kids in foster care are in foster care because they were you know, born to parents who didn't want them. Unfortunately, our, our country is a way of separating black families. And so like, there's, there's a lot more at stake than just there's not 40,000 kids who weren't wanted. That is absolutely not what I'm saying. Um, but we are dealing with a onslaught of children who need families. And uh, meanwhile, we've got people who are standing outside promising to adopt your baby. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely the larger conversation too, of like, people are just so abundantly unaware of how the foster care system, I was going to say works, but I kind of want to say fails <laughs> in this country. Exactly. That is a whole different topic for another show. Yeah. And I do want to make sure we do talk a little bit more about dirty dancing because there are a lot more like aspects to it. But one of the things that if we wanted to talk about in the situation of dirty dancing, it's not that like, they're like, Oh, Penny, you know, do you want to keep your child or not? Penny knows she cannot possibly get pregnant period. There is no discussion of the baby she is giving up. And part of it, I think, is interesting is that this film, if you think about the setting, it's 1963 and they're in the Catskill Mountains and they're at this family campground resort kind of thing with all these activities. And recently, in just the last couple of years, we saw a very similar setting for The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. If you recall, if anyone's seen the second season of that show, a whole chunk of it takes place at a family you know, getaway resort in the mountains, in Catskill Mountains, with Mrs. Maisel's entire family. And that's because in the 60s, a lot of resorts and hotels were not open to Jewish families. There would be Jewish communities that started these resorts in the Catskills, where you could come and uh, you know, learn how to dance, you could play bingo, you could go swimming, you could participate in intramural sports for the weeks that you were there. And so the setting for Dirty Dancing, and I didn't connect this until just recently when I rewatched the movie, setting for Dirty Dancing is one of those types of resorts. So right now, when we're looking at the discussion around freedom of religion, freedom from religion, how that, you know, how Roe v. Wade is very much a Christian belief. And it's not, I keep seeing people liken it to like Islam. Islam is not this way at all. So like, it's very much a Christian belief. And in fact, there are a lot of Jewish scholars that are coming out and saying, you're imposing a religious, you're taking away a religious right that we have because in the Jewish faith, you have to protect the mother. You have to abort if the mother's life is at stake. Yes. Mm -hmm. And so maybe that is another reason why when we're watching Dirty Dancing that no one in the community is going, oh my God, she's going to kill an infant by having an abortion. They go, no, we just need to get her the care that she needs. That is a really interesting aspect of the movie that 
I mean, I know I haven't seen it, but it's not even something I was aware of that that was kind of the context behind it. So that makes a lot of sense um, that you know, there wouldn't be a lot of moral outrage necessarily because uh, you're absolutely on point. Yeah. Now, I mean, the character of Penny, I think I know that when they originally wrote the movie, uh, Eleanor Bernstein was the writer of the film. She wrote uh, Patrick Swayze's character, Johnny, right? Johnny Castle. Yeah. Johnny Castle. Johnny <laughs> Castle was supposed to be, I guess, like extremely Italian. <laughs> Yeah, did and you then know- they cast Patrick Swayze and they were like, well, I guess not. <laughs> did you know that Billy Zane was like a hair away from being cast as Johnny Castle? Yeah, but he couldn't dance. <laughs> exactly. And if you find videos of like his test screens, it's really bad. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, he I think he gave an interview where he was bragging that he was almost Johnny Castle and Sarah Jessica Parker was almost baby. Yep. Yeah. Which she- that would have been a weird movie. <laughs> Yeah, well, because I guess the studio wanted Sarah Jessica Parker because she was more famous than Jennifer Grey at the time. Despite the fact, well, at this point, Jennifer Grey had done Ferris Bueller. Mm -hmm. She was the older sibling. I mean, she she did. And you want to talk about small circles, right? So um, Sarah Jessica Parker is one of their number one choices they were thinking of for baby. Jennifer Grey gets the role. Jennifer Grey was about to do uh, press for Dirty Dancing when she was in Dublin with Matthew with Matthew Broderick, and they had a head-on car collision. So, and that's that was horrific to her. She ended up going through a lot of reconstructive surgery, and it was a very traumatic experience for her. But let's talk about like the superficial stuff, which is. <laughs> Sarah Jessica Parker almost got the role. She got the role instead. And then she was in a car crash with Sarah Jessica Parker's future husband. Wow. Oh, yeah. I didn't even think of that. Yeah. Well, no one does. It's just yeah. a dumb little, like, small world thing, right? So, but yeah, it's, it's yeah. So, yeah, there, there are a lot of different decisions. Um, but someone else that you would recognize in this movie is Wayne Knight, who plays Stan, who is the MC, mm-hmm. whose whole bit is just telling corny jokes. Well, that this was Wayne Knight's first major movie. Wait, because isn't that Newman? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> And so they actually said because he got this movie, it probably opened the door for him to be cast five years later as Newman and Seinfeld, not to mention other 90s classics, which we will have to talk about Jurassic, Jurassic Park. Park. <laughs> and my particular favorite movie of, the t- of, of my childhood, Space Jam. Space Jam. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, so he went from being uh, telling just the absolute worst jokes in this movie to being a, a fixture in 90s TV and, and film and continues to be. I think I just saw him in another movie. Oh, he does the voice of the penguin in the Harley Quinn animated series. Oh, that's a good show. Love that show. It's coming back this month. You finished. So yeah, so there's there's plenty. Um, Kenny Ortega did the... the um, choreography for this Kenny Ortega went on to direct Hocus Pocus he also I believe directed and probably choreographed quite a bit of the high school musical movies we're all in this together yeah (laughs) I've seen it (laughs) clearly (laughs) so yeah so we got um the the cast and and we have already mentioned Jerry Orbach uh best part of Law and Order Mm -hmm. uh as much as I love Ewan McGregor, uh, Jerry Orbach is Lumiere, always will be. Oh, yeah. In, in, in the original Beauty and the Beast. So, but he does play such a good character. He plays, you know, he, he's not just baby's dad, but like as soon as she comes to tell him what's going on with Penny after the abortion um, doesn't go well, he takes his bag and he goes. He doesn't even, he, he doesn't al- scold Penny. He just does it. He does what needs to be done. He honors his Hippocratic oath. Unlike uh, the doctor with the, the dirty knife and the folding table. Yeah. Also, Emily Gilmore is baby's mom. Yes. And actually, that was that was uh, strange in itself because, like I mentioned at the top of it, uh, Patrick Swayze was 35 when they made the movie. In fact, he wore a girdle to make himself look a little bit more slender during oh the filming. God. So he would look a little bit younger. Um, Hilarious. So Patrick Swayze was 35. Kelly Bishop, who plays um, uh, Baby's mom, was only eight years older than him at the time. So she was 50 or 43. And then Jennifer Grey was 27. Um, There were definitely, it was definitely a time where they just, they they cast the hot names and they just figured out the ages later. Yeah. 27 to 35 is a little bit more age appropriate than some other 
choices that have been made in Hollywood casting. Yeah, especially recently too. Yeah, weren't they? Wasn't there just a thing I was seeing around the Twitter sphere about Laura Dern being way younger than Sam Neill in uh, mm-hmm. well, always because that doesn't change, but like specifically. But yeah, I think she was Park. in her. Yeah, she's like in her early to mid twenties in Jurassic Park, and Sam Neill is a lot older. Yeah, yeah, but then again, like also think of our concept of what age looks like. So I just read today, James Gandolfini was 37 when they started filming The Sopranos, mm-hmm. which means Jeez. that he was, yeah, so he was two years younger than people like Andrew Garfield are now. Jeez. That's how our concept of aging has skewed itself because we think of, we think of him, we think middle-aged, you know, but no, he was only 37. Well, you know, you get into your thirties and it's like, you die soon anyways. So well, only if you're a woman in Hollywood, otherwise you age like a fine wine, like Clooney. That's true. You know, in addition to sort of the abortion sort of storyline, a lot of what Dirty Dancing is also about is sort of like classes, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Because like we see at the beginning, I didn't, I never picked up on it until the last time I watched it. The owner of the resort comes around. Kellerman comes, you know, it has like a, a roundup of all of his waiters that work at the resort. And mm-hmm. he's seen telling them, okay, your job, you know, this is a family place. Your job is to be very cordial to the parents and to show the daughters a good time. Yeah. And he probably- so they're like, he probably didn't mean like that good of a time, but you know, you know, but no, I mean like he, you know, he's like, Hey, take them out on the veranda to look at the stars, ask them to dance, you know, all of these like very, you know, it, it's kind of an interesting gender reversal if you think about it, because like the whole thing, typically we think of like Fredo, you know, and like the girl, you know, telling the girls to show the, the, the business colleagues a good time. Mm-hmm. Um, this is kind of a, a gender reversal where we have the business owner telling telling them to make sure the daughters are kept entertained. Obviously, as you said, though, like maybe not that well entertained, Uh, (laughs) but that is part of it. But then we also get, you know, Johnny later on talking about how this job is completely messed with his head because he's got all these women giving them their room keys and he knows it can be yanked away at any time and he's been to the bottom and he doesn't want to go back. So yeah, there's a lot of class being involved too we've got baby whose dream is to go into the peace corps and to solve the world's problems but yeah here she is you know vacationing with her family in the catskills yeah exactly and it's like she hasn't really had i mean she's young like she's supposed to be like 18 and she hasn't even really had like any outside experiences other than her own sort of upper middle class wealthy family experience and I do like that her family doesn't like tell her, you know, just shut up and eat your food. Like I, again, Jerry, yeah. just makes my, makes my day in this movie. Cause like she, you know, they're talking about, you know, look at all this food left on the table. And her mom's like, oh, you know, we, and are people still starving in Europe? And she's like, oh no, try Southeast Asia. And her dad's like, okay, we're going to wrap up all this food. And we'll sound it, send it to Southeast Asia. Like he doesn't, he's, he, he cajoles her a little bit, but He's still very accepting uh, of who she is and who she wants to be, which is also very lovely. Jerry Orbach, father of the year in cinema. Yeah, for sure. So, yeah. So, Katie, you mentioned that you watched the episode of Movies That Made Us um, that talks Mm. about this movie. And I have not watched a single episode of the show. I think I have to. Oh, it's so fucking good. It's short. It's like, I think it's six episodes a season and, and all the movies they go into are pretty classic movies that most everyone has seen. But yeah, there was, it's a really good episode. The story of how the movie got made is like most movies that end up being classics. It was definitely an uphill battle. And I always think it's really funny every time it gets me when, you know, some famous producer, director, studio head, whatever, will hear about, you know, the story of the movie or the script of the movie, or in this case, it was like this well-known producer watched a rough cut of Dirty Dancing and he was like, throw it in the trash and burn the negatives and collect the insurance money. Mm. This is going to do nothing. But no, the, the funny thing about this movie to me is that Eleanor Bernstein wanted to write a movie about Dirty Dancing. 
which she said was what you you see the quote unquote lower class people doing in the movie, like kind of all the grinding and being close together and stuff. She was like, yeah, that's what we used to do away from our parents. We'd go down into a basement and dirty dance. And that's really like what she wanted to write about. They sort of backed themselves into the story. But mm-hmm. Yeah, I was thinking about I was like, I was thinking about like in high school, when our teachers would get really pissed at us at dances, if we were grinding up on each other. <laughs> Did you have the, the the balloon you had to hold between each other? You know, room for Jesus? No, they would just turn the lights on and <laughs> be like, hey, everyone, stop being so horny. <laughs> like <laughs> In those exact words. <laughs> I'm paraphrasing. <laughs> But Lisa, did you have something similar at your school? Yeah. Did you ever dirty dance? Um, so I'm trying to think. I personally wasn't much of a dirty dancer. And I went to a Catholic middle school. Um, okay. <laughs> once I got into high school, though, I was just more of the uh, nerd crowd. <laughs> <laughs> hey, that didn't that didn't stop our nerd crowd. Uh, I, I can picture now, Katie, so, teachers turning on the lights. But you were saying. yeah (laughs) she wanted to write a movie about dirty dancing and like that experience of being a teen and then sort of they backed their way into into the rest of the story she did say that like she set out to write a romantic movie like I was saying before that sort of had some some substance to it one of the other things um the studio that produced it was this studio called Vestron, which is now out of business, defunct. They produced really great movies prior to Dirty Dancing, like Chopping Mall. I don't know if you guys have seen that I one. do not know this movie. It's like a, a very, very B, 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 B horror movie. <laughs> I've seen it. It's, it's about these like mall security machines that go rogue and they start killing people in the mall. So like Paul Blart meets RoboCop? Yeah, kind of. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, so movies like that. There was there was no there's no focus on quality. They were kind of quantity. And also they produced a lot of VHSs and I guess like that was still before VHS like people were really watching movies at home. Like the only videotapes that people really had were porn. <laughs> Like, that would explain why in 1988 they said that this was the top rental from mm-hmm. uh, from video rental stores. So yeah, they so they worked with this company Vestron to like get it produced, distributed. Like it was a success, but it didn't really save that company, um, unfortunately. But you can still watch, you know, the greats like Dirty Dancing and Chopping Mall. Well, you- and then actually Conan O'Brien is also to thank for some of this film's uh, late life revitalization. I guess he served as a gag on his show, started telling people to, to write in to the studios to tell them to release Dirty Dancing as a special edition DVD. Oh, shit. I didn't know that. And yeah, to, or I think it was like to re-release it on DVD or something. But um, yeah, the, I don't think the studio was planning on doing it quite yet, but they got this onslaught of Conan O'Brien fans writing in. And when asked about it later on there, you know, someone was like, you know, Conan, you, you like Dirty Dancing so much. You got all these fans to like write in. And he was like, I really don't like the movie that much. <laughs> it was all a bit. <laughs> nice. Still, thank you, Conan O'Brien. <laughs> yeah. Oh, another another thing I learned from the episode, but it is a good episode. Everyone should go watch it. The record, the vinyl that came out, the soundtrack that came out was one of like the best selling records of all time. And that like made a bunch of money because people would go see the movie and then immediately run to the record store and buy the soundtrack. Oh, and heck, even if you didn't see the movie, if you think about what's on that soundtrack, it's all great, great stuff. So that makes total sense. I mean, like I I liked the movie American Hustle quite a bit, but not so much that I bought the soundtrack just because it was American Hustle. I bought the soundtrack on vinyl because the soundtrack for that movie is awesome. No, no stranger to doing that, but that makes sense. Well, I know that we are coming up to the end of our time, but I, uh, first off, Lisa, thank you so much for joining us with, with us uh, tonight and listening to us talk about a movie that you've never seen. You should watch it. I will. I- it's going on the list. Yeah, yeah, and let us know what you think of it. However, don't watch uh, Dirty Dancing 2 Havana Nights. Or or the 2017 remake, which even 
critics who originally were around long enough to pan the original Dirty Dancing said that the 2017 remake was a disgrace to the memory of the film. I forgot about that. Holy shit. Yeah. It was like that time period where they're like, oh, it was made in the 80s. Let's remake it with like Julian Hoff. So like they did Footloose and they did Dirty Dancing roughly around the same time. Dude, I've got thoughts about Footloose. (laughs) Oh, that's going to be another episode. (laughs) But Lisa, any last thoughts? I mean, I'd love to hand it over to you. I know that your organization is hard at work, especially right now. Um, Is there anything that, you know, listeners who are interested in learning more or interested in supporting your cause, anything that, you know, they, you want to share with them for how to get involved? Yes. So, I mean, what we talked about earlier, right, was uh, patient escorting. And so something that's really important to understand is that is very separate from what my organization does. So that's something, you know, in this time, right, there are many different ways for people to get involved in the movement. And I know um, that, you know, patient escorting is one very popular way. In fact, Escort groups across the country have been completely flooded with volunteer applications. And so, you know, folks might be looking for other ways to get involved. And that's really where reproductive transparency now comes in, because our mission is very, very focused raising awareness of anti-abortion crisis pregnancy centers, which are also often called fake clinics. And The thing that's really important to know about these places is they are everywhere across the United States. They are in all 50 states. In many states, they are getting uh, massive amounts of taxpayer funding. And it Which is, is all- so ironic because you because of the what is it called act? You can't have any federal funding for abortion clinics but they can get American tax dollars. They do. They get tax dollars and it varies a lot by state. So, you know, in Illinois, they don't have a a state budget. They have gotten some federal funding, especially when you had some of the the COVID um, benefits coming out to support small businesses. Mm -hmm. Um, So there is funding through that. But in some states, so if you think about Texas, for example, there was recently an expose on crisis pregnancy centers in Texas. Um, I believe they were allocated $100 million over two years. So it's a lot of money going to serve an anti-abortion mission rather than going towards better health care, safer communities, food for families living in poverty. Instead mm-hmm. of providing actual help, it is going to these places that are part of massive networks all over our country, and not to mention now proliferating outside of the U.S., to essentially intercept pregnant people with promises of free pregnancy tests, free ultrasounds, free diapers, get them to come in and just inundate them with anti-abortion propaganda, Mm -hmm. harmful medical misinformation. These places for the most part, do not have medical licenses. People think they're visiting a medical facility, but they don't have medical licenses. They don't have medical staff. The ultrasounds that they are giving could be given by any person off the street. They don't necessarily know what they're doing with the ultrasound equipment because all they're trying to do is pick up some sort of cardiac activity and then manipulate you emotionally to say, you know, you, you, you can't do this. And they don't even know necessarily if the person's considering getting an abortion or not. There are a lot of people who just wanted the free pregnancy test. So this is a major, major gap uh, in our country in terms of getting people the medical care they need because they're getting tricked by these manipulative people um, with very false advertising claiming uh, to provide abortion counseling when really all they're providing is anti-abortion propaganda. And these places could be right in your community and you'd have no idea. We, in our protests, so we protest crisis pregnancy centers here in Illinois. And you know we have had people come up to us during those protests and say, wait, this is one of those pregnant and scared places. This isn't an abortion clinic. Wow. They're that good at hiding it. They are that good at hiding it. The names are similar. The messaging is similar. Um, Some of the crisis pregnancy center networks here in Illinois, they'll actually maintain two completely separate websites. One that is 
for potential clients that they are, you know, tagging with keywords like, you know, abortion, I need an abortion, abortions near me. Mm -hmm. So the pregnancy center will pop up. Um, But then they have a separate website for their donors where it is very, very clear that they are an anti-abortion organization and they will brag about the work that they're doing. (laughs) It is disgusting. And so many people have no idea that these things are happening and that these places are right in your community presenting itself as some small nonprofit run by maybe a couple of middle-aged or, or elderly ladies trying to make a difference in their community. These are backed by huge machines and they are even more dangerous now than they ever have been before because now that Roe has been overturned and in now in those abortion hostile states where they are implementing essentially bounties for people mm. who aid in a bet abortion. Where do you think the information that they're going to use against pregnant folks is coming from? Yeah. It's these crisis pregnancy centers, collecting data, compiling massive databases. Data privacy is a huge concern here. And this is something we need to be thinking about and protecting ourselves against. And there are a lot of resources out there to kind of understand more behind what's going on. If you know any of the listeners are interested in learning more, uh, we do collect a lot of resources on our website because it's a difficult area to navigate. So you can learn all about crisis pregnancy centers. You can learn about ways to protect your data. You can also learn about the resources that are out there. If you are seeking an abortion and you are looking for a provider, um, there are online directories that only provide verified providers. And so on our website, we have those listed. Um, It's really important that we inform each other about this issue. And um, we also have a volunteer application on our website. So if folks want to come out and get involved in something, learn more about it, I definitely encourage, you know, applying for that as well. Yeah. So our website is reprotransparency.org. And we'll post that along with this episode. In fact, if you keep an eye on our Twitter feed after this goes live, we'll post your website. I know that there was a John Oliver last week tonight that he did. It was a 20 minute expose on, on these pregnancy crisis centers and very similar information. So yeah, keep an eye on our Twitter feed at SP Cinema Club for more information on all of this. Uh, like Lisa, like you said, right now, there's a lot of misinformation that is going to be passed around. And it's just important that we keep each other as informed and up to date as possible. Absolutely. Well, I think that's going to do us for today. Thank you so much, everyone, for taking a listen. Thank you, Lisa, for the work that you do, for taking time out from the work that you do to join us and, and talk movies and talk about this very important issue. Yeah. Um, so don't forget to follow us on Instagram and Twitter. We are at SP Cinema Club. If you like our podcast, please subscribe and share it with your friends. Also, you can rate and review us on both Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And um, just FYI, uh, we are now going to be in a regular posting schedule. So you can look for new episodes in your feeds every Monday from here on out. Woohoo! I'm excited. Thank you very much. Have a good one, guys. We'll see you next week. Bye.